0: You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear
1: out for us. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. Okay. Now I can't read it. There's no there's no words on it. There's no words there to play us out. What does that mean to play us out? All right, go go.
2: In five, four, three.
1: That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. And we will leave you with a. I can't do it. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll,
0: no. we'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can I'll write it and we'll
3: do it live. Right. Fucking thing sucks. In five, four, three.
1: So one way I deal with failure in my real life is that When these things happen to me, I tell as many people as possible because telling stories about failure has a way of reaching back into your past and taking something that was awful or embarrassing or uncomfortable and making it yours. Naturally, Following that instinct through to its logical conclusion led me to start telling stories about my failures to crowded rooms full of strangers. And in that spirit, we're going to bring you three failures recorded live on stage. And the first one starts now.
0: Go yeah. When I was in 10th grade, my high school had a very strict social hierarchy. At the top were the preps, followed by the jocks, then the grunges, and the stoners, and the band geeks. And of course, at the bottom were the nerds. Well, well not quite at the bottom, because there was me and my friends. You see, folks, I'm afraid to admit it, but I was a chess nerd. My three friends and I would hide our pimply faces during lunchtime in the library, playing not just regular chess, but variations of chess, like absorption chess, checklist chess, and our favorite, reverse chess. (laughs) Problem was, I wasn't very good at chess. You you see, I I thought of myself as more Zach Morris than Boris Spatsky, and I, I figured that if I didn't change something soon, I was gonna spend the rest of high school as a social outcast. One day I was dejected by yet another anti-checkmate, and I realized (laughs) that I had to do something different, and I applied to the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics.
2: Woo! Yeah!
0: (laughs) Getting there. NCSSM was a public boarding school that was set up by the state, with mostly for rural kids who had sort of surpassed their homeschool's ability to teach them math and science. But for me, this represented a golden opportunity. Basically, I felt like, hey, if I could surround myself with even bigger losers than me, <laughs> then perhaps by relative properties, I would be even better. So I apply, and I get in, and when I get there, I'm relieved to see a huge banner when I get there that says, welcome, class of 1996, unicorns. (laughs) Yes, unicorns. Clearly, with a mascot with the name Uni, we all had to leave our egos at the door. And and, and frankly, the mascot was a lot better than the alternative. Apparently, when the city of Durham had a choice, they had to choose between unicorns and square roots. So at least the voters of North Carolina got that election right. <laughs> my, uh, my transformation uh, starts with my name. My, my given name is Nooper, which several elementary school bullies had previously recognized also rhymes with pooper and scooper. <laughs> so, so if I was going to up my game, I clearly had to make a change. So from then on, I decided to go up to people I hadn't yet met and say... Hi, I'm Noop, like Snoop, without the S, or the (laughs) dao ga It didn't work. Uh, I clearly had to do something more drastic if I was going to really gain some social capital. One day, one of my friends on my brother hall, Third West, uh, tells me that there's going to be a hot pepper eating contest and that I should join.
1: Guys, this is it. This is
0: my chance to show the school that I am a force to be reckoned with. And frankly, I think I can probably win this thing. I am in the South after all, which I'm pretty sure the, the main spice is bacon. Uh, I was the only person to bring in their own bottle of uh, Tabasco hot sauce. And my mom had notoriously brought us samosas instead of orange slices to soccer practice. So I was, I was bred for this, I was gonna win. The, the day of the competition arrives, and in classic s m fashion, it is exceedingly nerdy. Um, th- there are seven rounds in escalating Scoville units, which, as you know, are the unit of measurement of spiciness. Um, the rules are pretty straightforward. Uh, water is allowed, uh, but no milk, no bread, no anything else. I-, I take a look at my competition. There are seven guys and two girls, but there's really only one person that I'm really worried about. Hao Cheng. Now, now, Howe is from Statesville, and he's 6'2", and I know that as a child of immigrants, he, too, grew up eating spicy food. The competition starts, and round one is a cupcake. It's pepperoncini. Less than a thousand Scovilles. I pop it in. Delicious. Two, two people drop out immediately. This is gonna be pretty easy. Round two, poblano pepper. (laughs) Round three, pickled jalapeno. Round four is a raw, oh dear God. (laughs) Round four is a raw jalapeno at 5,000 Scoville units. At this point, my mouth is burning and I look over at Howe and he's looking pretty red too, but people are dropping out like flies, so I'm not stopping now. (laughs) Round five a raw serrano pepper at 20,000 Scoville units. Now raw serranos are very spicy, but I managed to get it down. Round six is a doozy, and it's Dave's Insanity hot sauce, which at the time was billed as the world's hottest hot sauce and was rated at 100,000 Scoville units. I take three drops on my tongue, and it lights on fire. My head is sweating and my eyes are tearing up and I can't see anything, but when I finally open my eyes and blink I see that it's just me and Hao still standing. At this point we've gotten a bit of a crowd and I think to myself, hey if I can win this tournament I will be the adoration of the school and this will be sort of my catapult to becoming one of the cool kids finally. But first I have to get past my new rival Hao Chang. In many ways, it's sort of an epic battle. You know, China versus India. Uh, you know, the, the, the dragon versus the elephant. Mala versus Masala. Yao Ming versus a, a famous Indian athlete. Round seven, it, raw habaneros. At 200,000 Scoville units, the goal being to eat as many as possible, the person with the most is the winner. I eat the first one, and I get it down, and I feel an intense searing pain in my chest. It's at this point that the sort of cumulative Scoville units have created a sort of hallucinatory effect, and and I imagine a rainbow-colored unicorn made of ice cream and saltines prancing through a field of popsicles where there's overflowing fountains of (laughs) Pepto-Bismol, and and then the timer goes off, and the final tally is in. I had eaten four. How had eaten seven. The the audience filters out, and I imagine How walking out with several beautiful women... (laughs)
1: I, I sat there alone and ate
0: a piece of bread
1: <laughs>
0: disappointed i ended up going back to the dorm disappointed that, that my coolness had, had somehow slipped through my fingers i went to bed that night and it's around 2 a.m that it, it hits me a intense searing pain in my stomach that's radiating out to my belly button. It feels like the habaneros are trying to escape, but I will not let them. I'm writhing around in pain all night, and that pain continues into the next day, so much so that I have to skip class. You might be asking yourself, is, is there anything worse than losing the tournament and disappointing the homeland and, and having uh, <laughs> abdominal pain for the next day? Well, folks, there, there was. Um, it was winning the tournament. How ended up going to the emergency room that night where he had his stomach pumped and had to stay the night. So guys, if if you think about it, uh, in terms of cumulative Scoville units consumed in their entirety, technically I think I won. So while the tournament didn't result in me attaining social glory, I did, later on that year, become the president of the ping-pong club. Let's Scratch that. Co-president with none other than Hao Chang. So folks, I'll just leave you with our high school chant, which went like this, and you can sing along if you want. Sine, cosine, cosine, sine, (laughs) 3.14159. Physics, bio, polymer, chem, give them hell, go S and M!
1: That was Noop Meta. He's a doctor in Washington D.C. To learn more about Noop, you can email him at I don't have his email address at gmail.com. Next up is Robin Duty.
3: What do Bumble dates and potential employers have in common? They don't call me back. This is something that I would learn after I moved to Washington, D.C. I moved here to, uh, chase my dream, which was apparently to be somebody's executive assistant. Four months into living here, I had landed my tenth job interview to be Donna Brazile's assistant. Now, if you don't, if you don't know who Donna Brazile is, she was Al Gore's 2000 campaign manager. She was the interim head of the Democratic National Committee, and she was until recently a contributor to that. Channel where they put crazy people from the real world together to watch them argue? CNN. (laughs) Anyways, as I said, this was my tenth job interview, so I had already failed nine times. At this point in my DC career, I had spent much more time in unfamiliar lobbies than I had on dates, by an alarming margin. So, needless to say, I was pretty nervous. Donna Brazil has a shared office space downtown. I show up 30 minutes early. Naturally, she shows up 30 minutes late. So I had the joy of sitting in a huge conference room completely by myself, anxiety rising and falling like Toyota stock after a Trump tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Talking out loud is good. Talking out loud is good. I keep saying to myself, because I don't want my voice to squeak when she comes in, like I did at my bar mitzvah, and I took a modern interpretation of a passage that said the Lord punished unfaithful women by giving them protruding bellies. The comedian Gary Goldman says anxiety is that feeling. When you go to get your phone, it's usually in your right pocket. It's not there. It's that stomach thing. But instead of finding it in your coat pocket a moment after, you just feel that way all day. You never find your phone. Sitting in that conference room, I felt like I had just lost my phone the moment after my parents told me they're getting divorced, and it's probably not my fault. (laughs) Until, all of a sudden, she busts in how she behaved made a tornado look like an attentive guidance counselor <laughs> honey i've just been running around i've had an absolutely crazy day have you had a crazy day are you okay how are you doing do you need anything no thank you and then she leaves i sit there for 10 whole new minutes why did my parents mention it wasn't my fault <laughs> She busts back in like she has not missed a beat. She said, Now listen, I gotta tell you about this job. It's not very glamorous, it's an assistant position. You're gonna be here for only a year. We'll try to get you something better, but in that year, you have to do things like book my flights. I like the window seat, I like it up in front of the plane. You need to know what kind of window seat that I like. Also, when I write something, I know what news articles I'm referencing. I read the news all day. I don't need to do the hyperlink kind of thing. You need to do the hyperlink kind of thing. I'm like, okay. Oh, we, we are 17 minutes into this interview and all I've said is no thank you. Until finally she goes, all right, now tell me about yourself. I'm like, alright. This is my DC moment. Eminem starts playing my mind. <laughs> I launch into the most passionate and frantic pitch that I've got. It starts with a joke that references the title of her book. It makes note of her most recent TV appearance. And it works in the fact that I read Dreams From My Father when I was an organizer fighting the good fight. She does not react to any of it. Stone face. Until finally she asked me one question that uh, I got a heads up, I heard she would ask me. She goes, where do you want to be in 10 years? And I said, well, I'm from Texas and I want Texas to go blue and I want to be involved. Which she slams down her notepad and goes, this job isn't right for you. I don't need you behind some desk. I need you out in the streets preaching to the people. This job isn't right for me not only are my parents getting divorced, but they are getting remarried tomorrow to the now divorced parents of my only friend in the entire world. She rambles on about why this job isn't right for me or something completely unrelated. I do not remember because I was in a state of total sorrow, but she breaks this by going, Let's play some word association. (laughs) (laughs) To which I think, what the literal
2: fuck?
1: (laughs) Now, just for context, I have to say
3: this happened in April of 2015, well before Donald Trump date-raped our country, so this is important to (laughs) you. She starts, she goes, Warren Buffett. I don't know anything about Warren Buffett. I'm like, oh. Economics? (laughs) She goes, the Pope. I'm I'm Jewish. (laughs) Religion. Elizabeth Warren. I just read an article about her in Vox. I'm like, progressivism. All right. She goes, Hillary Clinton. I go, future. (laughs) She goes, Jeb Bush. I go, past. She's beaming by this point. Maybe my parents will get back together. (laughs) She stands up and goes, well Robin, I go, Donna, wait. I know you said that this job isn't right for me, but if you hire me, I think that we will excel together. What the fuck did I just say? (laughs) She looks at me. Put your arm around my shoulder and leaves me with these departing remarks. Honey, life can be a fickle thing. Uh-uh. You taught me how to make bread and chicken. She actually gave me a beer. I was 12. I drank the whole beer and I was only 12. but she was teaching me how to make bread and chicken. She's on a deathbed. And I'm visiting her this weekend. By this point, we got into the hallway and she goes, okay, we'll be in touch. And closes the door. <laughs> No joke, I see another candidate walking by. She looks really smart. Also, she's not a straight white male. So I'm like, all right. My parents aren't getting back together. Why did I ever think that? But uh, two days later, Donna Brazil called me. She told me I did not get the job, but she told me that it was a close call and I have some potential. So, Donna Brazil called me. <laughs> Donna Brazil also called the Hillary Clinton campaign and told them some questions she could expect from CNN. <laughs> Maybe her assistant had to do something unethical in that. I don't know. What I do know is, I found a job where I can really make a difference. I sort mail for an 80 year old Democrat in the House of Representatives. <laughs>
1: That was Robin Duty. To learn more about Robin, you can go to the U.S. Capitol building and ask for the straight white male who works for the congressperson. They'll know the one you mean. This next story is brought to you by Narcissism and stars me, Kate Riley. This is the first story I ever told on stage. Some people say it all went downhill from there. You know who you are. Dad. I'm Dad, I'm talking to you. After I graduated college, I moved back to D.C. And like any underemployed liberal arts major, I decided to focus my time and energy on finding love. <laughs> the first thing that I did as part of this plan was join a soccer team. As you do when you're looking for love. The plan was not successful. Most of the passes my teammates made were actual passes. (laughs) And even that didn't happen very often. (laughs) Because of the patriarchy. Uh, One night we were playing, and I was running up the center of the field, and one of my teammates crossed the ball in from the side. And I realized the ball's coming right at me, and I think, this is my chance. I'll kick this ball, I'll score a goal, I'll finally prove myself as a soccer player, and some guy on my team will finally notice me and think, she's a really good soccer player. (laughs) Maybe she should be my girlfriend. So I run up, I kick the ball, I hit it one touch, and it sails off my foot. And for a second, I know it's a goal. And then it hits a defender's shin, ricochets up, and hits me in the face. (laughs) And the vision in one eye instantly goes dark. And I know it's bad because my uh, fellow girl teammates are coming up to me and I'm covering my eye and they're like, show us, show us. And I'm like, no, I think I'm okay. I'll just, I'll just keep playing like this, it's fine. And, and then they, they get me to take my hand away and I do. And they look at me and they're like, oh my God. <laughs> you look, it's fine, you'll be fine, you, you look great. So I go to the emergency room And I see the on-call ophthalmology resident. And as he's examining my eye, he's asking me where I'm from and what I do. At the time, I was a temp at NPR. And my only task was editing old web copy for a new website, which really just involved deleting Oxford commas. I tell the eye doctor, you know, I I call myself the serial comma killer. (laughs) And he laughed in a way that indicated A, he knew what a serial comma was, and B, that he set a very low bar for puns. (laughs) And somewhere through the haze of fear and a concussion, I thought, he likes grammar too. Nice. My eye doctor tells me that my eye is seriously injured. Um, My eye's bleeding and the pupil's being obscured by blood, which is why I can't see. And, (laughs) And while it heals, I'll have to wear an eye patch and go on bed rest and come back in for daily appointments because if anything goes wrong, I could go blind permanently. So every day I'd come in and the eye doctor would say something like, you know, I listened to NPR on my way in today. I don't know how they've survived so long without you. (laughs) And we'd laugh because we both knew I wasn't important. And then I would follow up with really specific questions about ophthalmology because I spend a lot of time on WebMD ordinarily and having something diagnosably wrong with me had only lent a sense of purpose to my hobby. (laughs) And it was during these daily appointments I started to realize that my eye doctor was literally and figuratively a site for sore eyes. And not only that, but through offhand comments and internet research, I learned... (laughs) (laughs) I learned we had a lot in common. (laughs) He grew up in Maryland, I grew up in DC. Based on graduation dates, I estimated his age to be somewhere (laughs) between 28 and 31. I was 22, which is also an age. (laughs) Before going to med school, he taught high school. Around that same time, I attended high school (laughs) as a student. He was a doctor. I was a hypochondriac. We just made sense. At the time, I had these very indulgent roommates, and every night at dinner, we would discuss the subtext of that day's appointment, and I would say things like, you know, I think my eye doctor likes me because he always asks me how I'm feeling. And he wants to know when he's going to see me again. And like, sometimes when we're together, like, we don't even have to talk. We can just gaze deeply into each other's eyes. Now what my roommate should have said was, that's because he's your eye doctor. Instead, what they said was, of course, he likes you. You're great. We love you. My roommates also were my parents. (laughs) One night, I suffered a setback, and my roommate father had to rush me to the hospital. (laughs) At at 2 a.m. And after the doctor was done checking me out, he said, you know, we have to stop meeting like this. And my dad and I look at each other, and we're like, nice. (laughs) Because, obviously, that means that we should start meeting in some other way, like at a bar for drinks, or to meet his parents, or at the church where we're getting married. (laughs) And so I begin to think, maybe that crossed soccer ball wasn't my chance to impress the soccer guys. Maybe it was my chance to meet my eye doctor, Maybe the ball that blinded me is actually Cupid's arrow. (laughs) Maybe this is my destiny. (laughs) So a couple weeks later, as my final appointment arrived and it became time to say goodbye to my doctor forever, I decided that instead I would ask him out. (laughs) And I talked to a lot of people, friends, family members, roommates. (laughs) And we brainstormed a plan. Um, One of the first plans that we discussed was that during my final vision test, I should just say, sorry, doc, all I can see is you and I. (laughs) Which, while it had flair, and appealed to my doctor's appreciation of bad puns, that plan had to be rejected because that sentence is grammatically unsound. (laughs) And grammar was like our thing. So what we settled on was that I should hand him a business card on my way out and then just say, you know, since you're not my doctor anymore, and waltz out with the implication still hanging in the air. (laughs) Which which had the advantage of minimizing the window for an in-person rejection. (laughs) The day of the appointment arrived, I borrowed a dress from my youngest roommate sister. (laughs) And it... It was just a little too tight and a little too short because she was 14 (laughs) and I was an adult. Uh, But the important thing was that it had a pocket into which I then put my business card, which actually was not a business card because I was a temp. What it was was a card that we had stuck in my high school graduation announcements, and it was was shaped like a business card, but all it had on it was my engraved full name. (laughs) And I had painstakingly handwritten my number next to it. So I get, to the, I get to the doctor's office and the attending doctor, Dr. Wilson, is standing there with my doctor boyfriend, <laughs> which is not a part of the plan. And then she goes on to explain all of the things that are still wrong with my eye, which is really not a part of the plan. And as she's explaining the complications, I start to panic. And thinking, oh, my God, like, if I go back to playing soccer, I'll have to wear specs, so I'll never meet anyone that way, and my, my pupils might stay two different sizes, and symmetry is something we subconsciously look for in a mate. I'm damaged goods. I'll never find love. This is my last chance. And Dr. Wilson walks out, and my doctor fiancé looks at me. <laughs> And he says, do you need me to explain that to you again? And he does. And as he's explaining this the second time, I put my hand in my pocket and I start to turn the card over and over. And as I'm turning the card, a thought occurs to me. It's that this plan is really inappropriate. <laughs> like, I think this qualifies as workplace harassment, which is upsetting because always when I would pictured harassment in the workplace, I thought I'd be the victim, not the perpetrator. <laughs> and then I think, well, I don't have to go through with this. Like, I don't have to do this. And then, but, don't, but no, I've, I've told too many people. I wrote a letter to my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that when my doctor husband stops talking, <laughs> I'll have to execute this plan that I'm losing confidence in by the second. And suddenly the room begins to feel very warm and the dress that was just a little too tight is very constricting and it's getting harder to breathe. And I look up and he's stopped talking and I reach into my pocket to pull out the card and I faint. (laughs) I pass out. When I wake up the room is full of people. The attending doctor is back in and she's lifting up my legs to get blood to my head and I'm trying to check my pocket for the card (laughs) and at the same time keep the skirt that's just a little too short from flying up and she sees me trying to fix my skirt and she yells at my eye doctor and she's like, Dr. Goodman, get behind her. Don't worry, I won't let him get fresh with you. (laughs) And I'm like, I wish you would get fresh with me. (laughs) (laughs) So they wheel me over to the emergency room. The doctors run all sorts of tests. My roommate parents show up. And they're like, so, like, did you do it? (laughs) No, I fainted. (laughs) And the the doctors bring the test results back, and they, of course, they don't find anything because there's nothing wrong with me physically. (laughs) And my parents take me home to the family group house And I never saw the doctor again. I know. <laughs> I did go back to playing soccer. I have to wear rec Specs, which I found are a primitive but highly effective form of birth control. <laughs> so I've not met anyone that way either, but, I'm keeping my good eye open. Thank you for holding your applause till the end. That about wraps up this episode of Failure. Special thanks to Noop Mehta, Robin Duty, Kara Foran, Pierce McManus, and Amy Sedman. The two stories that were not me were for Perfect Liars Club, a storytelling show here in DC. Four Storytellers Tell Four Stories, The catch is, one of them is lying. To figure out whether you can spot the liar, you can come see their show the first Wednesday of every month or visit their website, perfectliarsclub.com. The story you heard from me was told live on stage at the Lincoln Theatre as part of Story District's Sucker for Love show. To find out more about their monthly storytelling shows, you can visit storydistrict.org. Lastly, I'd like to give a podcast recommendation. Morgan Gibbons is an amazing storyteller with an amazing podcast called Dispatches. And if you're not listening, you're missing out. It's so good that it once made me ugly cry on a train. That's true. I'm Kate Riley, and this is Failure. Keep an ear out for us.